It's important to differentiate the two things, but understand that atomic weapons and atomic power are very much related. And um, I think that the destruction that both can cause are equally catastrophic. And I think if, if for instance, in Ukraine, if the Zaporizhia plant, if there is some sort of accident to happen, if the backup generators fail and there's a meltdown or uh, a, sh a shelling hits a waste the container, um, we could see a, a horrible, horrible accident. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hi all, my name's Nati, Audience Engagement Editor at Indies Times, a monthly magazine that covers labor, politics, and social movements from the left. It's my great pleasure to introduce this event tonight. We're so thrilled to be celebrating Joshua Frank's incredible new book, Atomic Days, The Untold History of the Most Toxic Place in America, out now through Haymarket Books, and Frida Berrigan's essential new article, How to Avoid Nuclear Standoffs That Threaten the Entire World, which is the cover story of In These Times' most recent issue. We're so grateful to Haymarket Books for partnering with us for this important discussion. We've got an incredible panel, so I'll go ahead and introduce them now. Joshua Frank is an award-winning California-based journalist and co-editor of the political magazine Counterpunch. He's the author of several books, including The Big Heat, Earth on the Brink, and Atomic Days, The Untold Story of the Most Toxic Place in America, which you can get now through Haymarket Books. Frida Berrigan is a community activist and urban gardener living in New London, Connecticut, with her husband, three kids, and six chickens. In New London, she works with a new and growing community land trust for permanently affordable housing, gardens, and gathering space, and engages deeply in the barter and mutual aid economy. She's the author of It Runs in the Family, on being raised by radicals and growing into rebellious motherhood. Her writing appears regularly at tomdispatch.com, Waging Nonviolence, and other outlets. She's a contributing editor for In These Times. As Frida writes in our cover story, tough times require bold vision. We can't rest until the weapons are eradicated. Our demand can be nothing short of abolition. Indigo Olivier is a reporter researcher for the New Republic. Her writing on politics, labor, and higher education has appeared in The Guardian, The Nation, In These Times, and Jacobin, among other outlets. As a fellow at the In These Times Leonard C. Goodman Institute, for investigative reporting. She wrote on Lockheed Martin's sweeping recruitment on college campuses, exposing the engineering degree to defense industry pipeline and how students are challenging it. Thank you all so much for being here. If possible, please consider subscribing to In These Times and supporting Haymarket Books. We quite literally can't do this work without you all and we're so grateful for your support and solidarity. I'll let Frida take it from here. 
Great. Uh, thank you uh, so much, Nadi, for that introduction and, um, and to all of you who I can't see for joining uh, in this important conversation and to Joshua and Indigo. Um, I really look forward to a conversation that is, um, that is so critical um, and, and not just in a, in a punny way. I think there's a, a, a lot that is, you know, kind of brewing in this exact moment as we talk about nuclear weapons on uh, this uh, particular day and talk about, um, as, as Joshua's uh, book really um, lays out, uh, the way in which uh, the legacy of nuclear weapons and nuclear power um, is literally poisoning uh, our world, even as it as it foreshortens our future. Um, and maybe just to name a couple of the you know the the larger context in which we're having this conversation tonight. Of course, there's a hot war um, between uh, a nuclear armed uh, antagonist and invader. Uh, uh, Russia invading uh, Ukraine and the um, the kind of new nationalism uh, and um, and uh, kind of uh, far away uh, patriotism, uh, desire to send weapons uh, that uh, is is so much here in the United States, um, which really just brings me back to the Mark Twain adage of all when all you have in your toolbox are hammers, all your problems look like nails, and I think. Um, this uh, this invasion um, of Ukraine by Russia really demonstrates the limits of, of, of U.S. power um, and um, and how, despite having you know hundreds of billions of dollars uh, worth of hammers, we really don't have a lot of tools at our disposal. Um, this conversation that we're having tonight comes on the heels of the second anniversary of the the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons and the celebration of that uh, treaty entering into force and the 68 nations um, that have ratified the treaty um, and the, what is it, 90 or 100 nations that have signed it and are in the process of ratifying it. And this power of the people um, and power of the global south, uh, power of smaller, uh, not nuclear armed nations uh, working together, working outside of the um, the power of the Security Council, that kind of um, cluster, uh, um, a big Hoover Dam of, of power that blocks uh, that blocks change um, happening. Um, so you know, people uh, stood out on uh, street corners with banners yesterday and over the weekend, and perhaps on Friday as well, because the anniversary was Sunday with big thank you cards uh, to the nations of the world that have signed this treaty. Um, treaty, which it, we can talk about more if it, if it comes up, really um, it provides a, a new roadmap uh, for uh, the international community to work um, on this issue and to, um, to you know, work at the intersections uh, that are so important uh, between you know, militarism and nationalism uh, between militarism and colonialism and racism, um, the, the way in which uh, you know, militarism affects um, uh, our warming climate um, and accelerates that. Um, I guess the third kind of things that we're really kind of swimming in today is the announcement by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists that we stand now, the world stands now at 90 seconds to nuclear midnight, literally a minute and a half 
uh, to the end of the world. And this tool out of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists has been used since 1945 to dramatize and, and seek to kind of cut through the, the rhetoric and the jargon and the, um, the ob obfuscation. Um, I knew that word would come out a little clunky and, uh, and maybe it's appropriate that it does, right? Um, that, uh, that surrounds uh, the nuclear issue. And so if we can kind of be thinking, uh, each of us individually and within all of the organizations and networks that we're a part of, uh, wow, like we're 90 seconds to nuclear midnight. What does that mean in terms of the, the urgency, and 90 seconds to nuclear midnight? What does that mean in terms of the urgency uh, with which I have to kind of, I have to bring my whole self uh, to this work one of the reasons I was really excited um, to, to write this piece uh, for in these times and really, you know, honestly honored um, to, uh, to be given such a, a, a large platform and um, a lot of words uh, to um, explore these issues is that, you know, the anti-nuclear movement um, has been around since the dawn of the nuclear age and has you know, really has done an amazing job. And um, whole books are written about our successes um, as as a international movement working on every front all at once um, around this issue and needing each one of us uh, to bring ourselves uh, into the work. Um, and so uh, I was able to, you know, just you know, skirt the surface or, or, or slide on the surface of that, that very deep and very rich history um, to remind myself, really, and, and hopefully other readers, remind myself that you know, the anti-nuclear movement um, saved the world. Um, it saved the world throughout the Cold War, and, um, and, it, can, and it can do it again. Um, and so um, to the extent that the article... The cover piece is a is a call to action. It's really a call to action for myself, um, and, and hopefully it resonates with others um, around this issue because it's so easy. And I think all of us um, can talk about the the ways in which this manifests. It's so easy to push the nuclear issue, whether it's nuclear waste or nuclear power, or nuclear weapons, uh, to push it to the margin and to say, well. You know, other things are more immediate, more critical, um, and uh, and the uh, the whole um, the whole apparatus of militarism uh, supports that with its language and with the way in which it's kind of cloaked and coded in expertise um, and uh, and jargon. Um, so so there's there's so much to unpack here this evening, and I look forward to doing it both with Indigo and with Joshua, and then hopefully with your questions and input um, along the way as well. So I, I don't know who should pick up, <laughs> but I see that Joshua has his, uh, his mic unmuted, so maybe I can toss it over to you. Well, I just uh, feed off of what you're saying, and thank you so much for that introduction. Um, and I'd have, I haven't told you this, but your father was a big influence of mine when I was in college and learning about his activism, um, and I was raised Catholic, uh, so it was kind of an inspiration to, I'm no longer Catholic, but it was an inspiration of the Catholic workers and the 
in the nonviolent dissent and targeting of nuclear facilities um, and weapons. And it was a real eye opener. And, and I learned a lot from that. And I know, obviously, <laughs> your parents both, you know, influenced you a lot. And um, I think it'd be really great to even hear a little bit about that, because you do touch on that in your piece. Um, but, you know, I think everybody comes to these topics from different directions in within the issue of atomic weapons or uh, nuclear power. Um, everybody's kind of touched in different ways. Some might be just from the standpoint of an environmental impact, might be from uh, just a, a war, imp you know, what's going on in Ukraine, um, learning about uh, the potential for a meltdown in Zaporizhia. Um, and in my own work, I came from really sort of um, an anti-war position. And then I really was opened my mind to what was possible and what was going on with uh, the proliferation at home, um, which is what led me to start working on researching this book on Hanford. Um, and for those of people that don't know what Hanford at Hanford was one of the three locations chosen during the Manhattan Project to develop atomic weapons for the U.S. government. Um, <clears throat> there was Oak Ridge and Los Alamos and also Hanford, and each were chosen for different purposes. Um, Hanford was chosen to produce plutonium, which was the fuel used in the Fat Man bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki at the end of, the world, of world War II. Um, but during the entire stretch of the Cold War, Hanford produced pretty much all of the fuel that was now in the reserves and being used for our atomic weapons. Um, but during, during the process and during uh, the manufacturing of this plutonium, billions and billions of gallons of chemical waste, highly radioactive waste, was literally dumped into the soil out in eastern Washington, where Hanford is located. Um, it's next to the Columbia River. It's an environmental graveyard for uh, atomic weapons uh, and also all of this old fuel that's going to be around for millennia. Um, there's 177 underground tanks that were only supposed to last about 20 to 30 years. Uh, we've had like somewhere almost 70 leaks that they know about that they're admitting to. Two tanks are leaking right now. In those tanks, there's like 57 million gallons of highly radioactive waste. It's pretty mind-boggling to really wrap our head around. I mean, I, I was talking to somebody recently, and I think it was really poignant what they said. It was like the Cold War is still bubbling in these tanks at Hanford. Um, and it's really this legacy of, of uh, U.S. imperialism that's still very present today. Um, so just to wrap it back around to what I was saying, I was like, I came to this whole topic from that standpoint and what is what is going on out there now. It's now the most in expensive environmental cleanup in world history, um, but it's directly connected to what the U.S. government has and capitalism has wrought across the globe. Um, and wrapped up in that is a for-profit cleanup industry going it, that is costing taxpayers billions of dollars. Um, the price tag right now is $677 billion to clean up this mess. Um, and there's no guarantee it'll ever be cleaned up or even safe. Um, it's it's uh, a catastrophe in waiting. Um, a lot of scientists that I interviewed for the book are very concerned that, and these are scientists that are pro-nuke, pro actually, um, but they're still very concerned about what could happen out there. These tanks 
are, uh, as I said, well, well past their life lifespan. There's constant hydrogen buildup in these tanks. So if a spark ignites, you could have a catastrophic explosion that devastates the Pacific Northwest. Um, a similar accident actually happened in Russia in 1957 at a sister facility that was producing plutonium. Um, people really probably haven't heard of this accident. It was at this facility called Mayak. Um, and it was right now, I think they have it as a level six on the, on the catastrophe scale, which puts it as the third worst accident in world history, a nuclear accident. Um, and a similar thing could happen in, in Hanford. Um, and obviously it wouldn't be, uh, the first time we've seen something catastrophic happen, but it's the first time we would probably see it on our homeland and it would be really uh, catastrophic and, and horrible for, for many reasons. Um, but I guess to, to the point of saying all of this is that we are living in the atomic age today still. Um, we'd like to think about it as something that was in the past, but as with all atomic, uh, you know, whether it's, it's for energy or for weapons, um, it lasts a long time into the future. And I think that we really need to be cautious when we're talking about uh, atomic power for an answer to climate change. We need to talk about it as uh, it's not an answer to ending any kind of warfare. Um, but as, you know, as, as Indigo writes about in her piece on Lockheed that I thought was really eye-opening, I had no idea what was going on, that there still is this feeder system into the, um, you know, the defense contractors that are, are making a, a bundle off of, you know, U.S. militarism. So maybe maybe that's a good <laughs> a little baton pass um, to Indigo to to talk about what she investigated and what she unraveled, which I thought was startling. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, so the Lockheed piece didn't focus on, on nuclear weapons. It was more um, just the defense industry's poll in general. But um, I could have easily written a piece on, on nuclear defense um, because the nuclear industry uses universities as pipelines the same way that missile companies do. Um, in fact, there have been um, some new agreements with higher education under Biden that's trying to facilitate more um, nuclear research and um, um, talent, like a talent pipeline, just because of like these ratcheting tensions with Russia speci specifically. Um, I mean, it just happened to be very well-timed again, um, like Frida mentions that this was um, the day that the doomsday clock was set, fo set forward, set back. Uh, to 90 seconds, and I'm I'm sorry if I missed this, but I uh, but I just wanted to highlight that it is the closest it's ever been in its history since it's it was started in the 40s, um, which is really hard to wrap your head around because, um, like you said, Joshua, we, we very much do live in the atomic age, but um, it's it doesn't feel that way on like a day to day level for so many people as you know, as like a younger person who tries to write for a young audience and like tries to get people to care about defense, the defense issues. Um, nuclear is probably one of like the ones that's harder to start a conversation over. Um, so I guess the question that I've just been going over in my head is like, how do you make this less abstract? Um, when, as we were talking about before this, this talk started, war has been so obscured because you know it's not like we're um enlisting people and sending them off to vietnam 
you know, we're using high tech drones and people stationed in like upstate New York to kind of remote control for remote control warfare. Um, and the nuclear issue is very much the same. And I think part of the reason that we've been able to, um, you know, hide our, our war apparatus is because we have these nukes behind us. That's, you know, it's, it's, we don't really point them out too much, but everyone knows they're there. So it's not like we even need this huge military apparatus. So yeah, I guess my, my question, and I'll just like pose this to either of you, is like, how do we make this issue less abstract on like a day-to-day -day basis when, you know, again, Ukraine's been in the news nonstop and it's really disturbing to see how little the threat of nuclear war is being discussed by the mainstream media. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, Frida, go for it. Yeah. Um, well, one, one thing that's um, haunted me since I, I first heard about it um, maybe a year ago, and I, I write a little bit about it in the piece, is um, the Fisher Principle. And uh, Roger Fisher was a Harvard um, uh, professor, a negotiator, lawyer. And, um, and he wrote a piece for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists in uh, May of 1981 suggesting that the way that it was easy to stop uh, a nuclear war from happening and kind of set the groundwork for global disarmament and he had a really simple proposal to put forward and it was uh, that the nuclear codes be embedded into the heart of an aid and that aid would uh, you know be by the president um, at all times and carry a big knife and if it ever came to pass that it was, you know, the thing to do, you know, we had to launch a nuclear uh, first strike attack or even a counterattack um, um, and extract the codes uh, from, the, from the body of this person who had accompanied them, you know, throughout their days for all these years up until that point. And Fisher says the 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 blood of this human being needs to soak into the rug of the Oval Office. And, um, and if this were the steps that had to be taken uh, to launch a nuclear attack, which you know, would incinerate uh, tens of thousands of people, uh, hundreds of thousands of people in, a, in an instant, um, and befoul the, the land and the water um, and uh, the, the the bodies of the survivors for generations to come, um, nuclear war would uh, would no longer be um, a tool in the toolbox. And uh, this um, this story was uh, uh, told to me by a, a student at Connecticut College, and um, and I was really gripped by it, and it made me think about uh, the messes my my family and the Atlantic Life community and the and the Catholic workers um, used to make at the river entrance of the Pentagon or all the entrances of the Pentagon uh, back in the 1970s when I was uh, quite a small child and in the 1980s, um, throwing uh, baby bottles full of blood up on the the pillars of um, the limestone pillars of the uh, riverside entrance and throwing ashes everywhere and um, uh, having these death specters and these haunting kind of costumes and 
uh, moaning and dying and uh, the, the workers at the Pentagon would walk in uh, tracking the blood and the ashes um, into work um, a number of times a year uh, for, for years and years on end um, to the point where the, the maintenance staff at the Pentagon would, um, would expect, you know, these these protests um, every couple of months and would wrap the pillars of the Pentagon in plastic uh, to try and keep uh, the blood from, you know, uh, soaking into the, the limestone. And I don't remember if it got into the final version of the piece, but um, over the years they would sandblast the pillars so often uh, that you could see kind of indentations and uh, kind of concaves in, in all of the pillars where um, the, you know, the power washing had kind of worn away this limestone. So I kind of have always been curious about the thought process of the, the people, you know, just people going to work with their coffee first thing in the morning, walking through uh, this blood and this kind of dramatization of the, the, the carnage and the, the mess of war making. And it occurred to me in the writing of the piece that, you know, this is kind of one of the, the things that my dad um, felt called to do uh, on a regular basis, Bill Berrigan would kind of run up to the, um, the pillars and throw this blood. And my mother, Elizabeth McAllister, uh, would often be leafleting and sometimes have one of us kids uh, in a backpack uh, on her back, leafleting all of the workers as they come in and Call, saluting them and calling them general and admiral and kind of uh, greeting them with um, with a lot of spirit and a lot of human connection. And I think about which approach which approach made the most lasting impact um, on those on those human beings who, um, who who worked in the Pentagon. And and it's a question that I think still you know is still not quite answerable or, or you know you, you choose one or you try and do both or you hope that you know the people who are trying to connect in a, in a really human um, you know invitational kind of way um, are, are working alongside the people who are trying to pierce through the the, the, the whatever the this word is you know the kind of fog uh, uh, the the um, the coning um, the psychic numbing um, uh, the 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 blinders that we put on uh, to kind of stave off the panic uh, and the despair uh, that um, that uh, comes with really grappling with the with the nuclear issue and and, and grappling with uh, climate change um, as well and um, and I think that at its best the anti nuclear movement Kind of did both um, was invitational, you know. Get write your congressperson, you know. Talk to your elected representatives. Write a letter to the editor, you know. Talk about, uh, you know, uh, nuclear weapons in in your elementary school, um, and very uh, provocative, um, and uh, you know, kind of um, prefiguring uh, the disarmament of of nuclear weapons by, you know. Uh, by the plowshares movement going on to uh, weapons and bases and uh, military installations and uh, symbolically transforming those uh, weapons of war. But I, I think that I think that there's a, a both and uh, that that we can 
that we can inhabit um, and, and really just kind of calling out the, yeah, just calling out the, the, the shadowiness, right? The, um, mm -hmm. whenever we, well, yeah, calling out the shadowiness and, um, and, um, and yeah. And whatever you want to say, Joshua. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. No, it, it has me thinking about, um, well, when we were talking about language and how language is used to <clears throat> either distance ourselves from the reality or uh, to, off, you know, muddy it in a way. And, and like, I think about how we're now talking about tactical nukes, right? These are these small nuclear weapons. Uh, they're not as bad, right? They're not the big hydrogen bomb that we used to explode in the Marshall Islands. You know, these are, these are like more modest, right? Um, but that, by doing, by, by talking about these weapons of mass destruction in this way, we dilute the reality of what they're used for and for what purposes they're used for and the destruction that they still cause when they are used, if they are used. Um, and, and, and not only weapons, but also energy. Um, just back in December, you know, we had this big announcement about this fusion breakthrough that we finally have discovered or have, have uh, I, you know, had this fusion ignition. Technically, maybe it wasn't ignition, but they're getting there, right? Um, at the Livermore Lab in California. And that it might be the answer to climate change, that if we can get this thing going, that we're going to have endless energy and it sounds great, right? It sounds like, oh, this is wonderful. This could be the answer that we've been looking for. Like this is endless energy. And then you start digging into it and you realize, well, it's it's too expensive. It's not gonna ever happen in time, commercial on a commercial level, in time to affect the climate. And it's really been funded by the defense industry. And if you get into the fine print, it that's what this is all about, right? It's all about um, improving our capacity and our nuclear arsenal. So it's, you know, I, when we're trying to talk about, as you know, as we're talking about with reaching a younger generation about these issues, it, it is complicated because the language has changed, um, the actions have changed, and when we're being fed this propaganda that um, this advanced technology is the savior, um, when we have a lot of readily available technologies now that are making a difference and it, you know, it's, it's, um, almost like a, uh, you know, it's, it's confusing the topic in a lot of ways that we want this big, you know, someone parachute in and save the world kind of mentality when it's really not going to happen. Um, so I think our role as activists, as journalists, as writers, um, we all can come at this from different directions, but I think we need to debunk this stuff. I and mean, I think we need to um, really talk about the reality of, of what this stuff is and what it has been and build on the legacy of, of you know, the plowshares and uh, the clamshell alliance and others that were shutting down uh, plants um, across the country um, before Chernobyl meltdown. Um, that's an important legacy of the anti-nuke movement that a lot of people don't know about. Um, I mean, I would argue that after the civil rights movement, after the Vietnam era, the most successful um, movement that we probably experienced was the anti-nuke movement um, that made a huge impact. I mean, all, all plants were basically halted in this country and there were hundreds that were planned. Um, 
you know, the Chernobyl meltdown definitely helped that along. Um, but, you know, that's an important legacy that I think is diminished by us being ignorant of its past. So, you know, I think when we're talking about reaching out to younger kids and talking to them and um, writing about this stuff, um, as Indigo is talking about reaching uh, a younger audience, um, I think this is important stuff to talk about as the history, but also how um, the propaganda has changed and the language around these issues has changed. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Atomic Days. The Untold Story of the Most Toxic Place in America by Joshua Frank. Once home to the U.S.'s largest plutonium production site, the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in Washington State is laced with 56 million gallons of radioactive waste. The threat of an explosive accident at Hanford is all too real, an event that could be more catastrophic than Chernobyl. Joshua Frank provides a much-needed refutation of the myths of nuclear technology, from weapons to electricity, and shines a spotlight on the ravages of Hanford and its threat to communities, workers, and the global environment. As Nick Estes puts it, the Hanford site haunts the future of the Columbia River Basin, its land, people, plants, and animals. It's a nuclear crime scene that once made atomic weaponry. Joshua Frank dissects that historical crime scene, tracing it back to the colonization of this land while also pointing to the future crimes that may have been unleashed by perpetual radioactive pollution. Find Atomic Days at haymarketbooks.org. Yeah, I mean, speaking of like younger generations, I, I kind of go back to this um, this issue about like how urgent it feels for, for most people, you know, when right now, in our memory, it's fresher that it's fresher in our memory that that students are doing like active shooter drills than duck and cover, where again like nukes kind of just get pushed to the side almost. Um, and you know the the again the language plays a really important role in this. That the fact that they're tactical nuclear weapons is kind of downplays like we don't have to have this huge mushroom cloud. We can have it very focused. And one of the things that's like really helped um, with approaching this work, you know, like with my training as a journalist is trying to get in the, into the minds of the defense workers who are doing this um, to understand where they're coming from. Um, and I think, um, you know, this is the case with like drones and high tech AI and things like that. I think the people who are working on this technology, again, are 100, not 100% comfortable with it, but for the most part feel like they're doing a service to their country because by having those nuclear weapons, they are preventing more um, like kinetic, bloody ground warfare, for instance. Like they see nuclear weapons as like the humane option to, you know, what was like ground warfare of World War II. So I, I guess my question is like whether, you know, this again, this is like I do my work because like I, I was inspired by a lot of the things that I read about the anti-war movement in the 70s. Um, and like that, that's where I get a lot of my inspiration. Um, but, you know, for, for um, I mean, not even a younger audience, but for like a 21st century audience where some of those tactics are kind of used by like Sunrise to draw attention to the climate issue, but it's not so much the tactics, it's it's the fact that climate change feels like this huge, it feels like the issue um, when nuclear weapons right now do not, like disturbingly do not feel like 
an issue that important. So I'm I'm just wondering whether, um, honestly, whether disarmament is the right goal to focus on at the moment, um, where that feels like a very big stretch. Again, like I don't have a I don't have like a definitive answer on this. It's like more of a question whether disarmament is the appropriate goal um, when, you know, for instance, I feel like there'd be more support for trying to negotiate a deal with Russia and Ukraine to kind of de-escalate and then have a larger discussion about disarmament without, you know, having that as like the main goal. I wonder what you two think. I mean, I, I think it's all connected in a way, right? Um, when we talk about climate change, we talk about the, the vitality of this planet that we're living on, that we share in the ecosystems and, and the plants and the animals and the, and the future generations that we're leaving. Um, and we're worried about that as we should be in the burning of fossil fuels and how we're contributing to that. But on the flip side, we've also have 90 seconds till <laughs> doomsday, right? Um, so I don't think, I think we can be concerned about both. And I think that we ought to be. Um, because just like we're contributing to the melting of the, you know, the ice shelves and the warming of the planet, we as humans are potentially also responsible for a catastrophe that could end most life on earth, um, with, you know, a, a trigger, uh, you know, so yes, obviously we need to, um, have peace in Ukraine and, and, uh, deescalate the situation as best we can, um, but the, you know, it, it just like we need to shut down the coal plant that's, you know, operating <laughs> in Wyoming. Um, but I think we also need to understand it's connected to a larger uh, imperialistic system. Um, when, you, when we talk about the countries that are uh, nuclear powered countries, uh, nuclear armed countries, um, the, you know, France is the largest, um, has the largest arsenal in Europe. Um, and I think it's also important to understand when it comes to the climate that um, uh, nu nuclear weapons and nuclear power are intricately connected. Uh, France is a perfect example. It's often deemed like this, the perfect atomic state, right? Um, but in reality, um, the funding of, of, of energy is also funding their atomic weapons programs. And on the flip side, you have these plants there that are operating that get heralded as this carbon-free plants. And they're going to, you know, this is how we need to operate in Canada and the United States. We need to build all these plants to save, save the climate. Uh, but <laughs> um, I hate to break it to people, but it isn't an answer to climate change. Um, the mining of uranium, which is needed for uh, atomic energy, is very carbon-intensive. Uh, uranium ore, the denser it is, the more carbon is needed to extract that uranium. Um, I could get into the mining on native lands that happens all over the world and the people that are exploited in that process. Um, we can talk about how much energy goes into constructing these big plants. Um, but on a very real level, and uh, aside from even the risk factors, uh, again, France is a perfect example of how this, this isn't working out. Um, France has, I think the last I checked, they have most of their, half of their plants are offline. And during the, um, the big heat wave last summer in Europe, uh, France had to shut down their plants because the water that they were drawing from local rivers to, you know, cool down the reactors 
were was too warm. So we have climate change heating up the rivers that are too hot to cool off the reactors. Um, it's just it's kind of crazy, crazy stuff, you know. Um, but I guess again, like going back to how this is all connected to, uh, I think it's in it, it's important to differentiate the two things, but understand that atomic weapons and atomic power are very much related. And um, I think that the destruction that both can cause are equally catastrophic. And I think if, if, for instance, in Ukraine, if the Zaporizhia plant, if there is some sort of accident to happen, if the backup generators fail and there's a meltdown or uh, a, sh a shelling hits a waste container, um, we could see a, a horrible, horrible accident. And I think the conversation around these things will change dramatically if that were to happen, and I hope it doesn't. Um, but it would happen, you know, could happen at any moment, um, as we as we know. So, um, aside from these tactical weapons, nuclear weapons that can be dropped or big weapons that can be used, we have the chance that one of these um, plants that's in a war zone could cause a huge, huge problem. Uh, you know, wind wind energy or solar energy don't don't pose those same risks. Um, so these are conversations that we need to have. I mean, it's complicated stuff, um, but I think we need to, de you know, simplify it down to the very basic level um, that all of it's connected, all of it is important to address, and um, I think there are multiple avenues we can come at it, and people can get involved on different levels um, and and see the bigger picture of things, right? So I don't know if that answers your question. I kind of went all over the place, but. Um, I think all of it is important, and I think all of us have a duty to enter it wherever we are comfortable. Some of us are are good at organizing. Some people are good at writing. Some people are are good at going door to door. Um, I happen not to be one of those people, but uh, um, I think there's a lot of you know acting local, right? Think global, act local is a is a is a good moniker. Um, Indigo, as you were, yeah. Thank you for that, Joshua. That was. A really amazing answer, and I'm I'm afraid to even jump in with my own kind of take on it um, after that. But um, as you were talking, Indigo, um, I had this image of a sidecar, and, um, and maybe the uh, you know like a, a, a human powered side little bicycle uh, and a sidecar, um, and that the nuclear issue, um, nuclear power, nuclear weapons, uh, the nuclear threat um, needs to sit in the sidecar. Uh, like all the time, um, you know, uh, today's the 24th of, of January and we're marking a 24th mass shooting here in the United States uh, since the beginning of the year, right? And um, I, I was really drawn to your, you know, juxtaposition of, of ducking cover drills and active shooter drills because I have children in elementary school and in high school and that's a that's a part of their reality, and um, and just kind of thinking about that the that the despair and the um, and the cheapening of life um, and uh, um, the kind of uh, disconnection uh, that leads to um, uh, mass shootings, you know, can find its psychological taproot um, in in kind of the specter uh, in 90 seconds to nuclear midnight, right? Like that can, that might not be, you know, art, articulatable by, uh, by those perpetrators, but, but it's in, it's in our, it's in our psyche, right? Um, 
this uh, this this deep despair, this futurelessness um, that uh, the dawn of the nuclear age in 1945 uh, opened up. Right, uh, Jonathan Shell says, you know. Um, uh, Hiroshima opened up a, a, a path to the end of the world, a road to the end of the world. And we're, you know, as Joshua's book um, so uh, beautifully drives home, we're like still walking on that road um, or, you know, like gunning down that road at 90 miles an hour in a Hummer, um, you know, uh, decades after the end of the Cold War, right? And uh, the supposed reaping of the peace dividend. So if we can kind of tuck nuclear weapons and uh, that futurelessness um, that nine nuclear powers and 15,000 nuclear weapons and a, you know, a $68 billion nuclear weapons bu uh, budget here in the United States, the futurelessness that that, that, that apparatus um, creates um, and that the military industrial complex gets rich off like coming, going, and in between, right? They they make the weapons, they sell the weapons to our future um, our future rivals, um, and then they get paid for cleaning up the nuclear waste too. It's just kind of this, um, and uh, and and I, I, you hit on this in your um, in your piece, Indigo, and uh, we foot the bill uh, for. For everything, including the the preparation uh, of the workforce, right here in southeastern Connecticut, we, you know, we foot the bill for workforce development for one of the uh, one of the uh, most successful weapons manufacturers, General Dynamics, in the world, right? Like they they make billions of dollars, and we pay for their lowest level workers uh, to get the get the job training that they need to go make $27,000 an hour as welders uh, at Electric Boat. Um, and then, you know, and then we pay because that's not, again, because that's not a livable wage in our very expensive state. So, so there's this, there's this system that is, um, it's an inhuman, profit-driven, you know, system of kind of the perfection of capitalism and so we can, you know, we can rail against that system is not just in, within the military industrial complex, within every corner of capitalism. And we can kind of tuck nuclear weapons in the sidecar of all of that. And as the as the as the supporting logic, uh, you know, behind the whole the whole thing, um, you know, and then we need to recognize that 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 people that we, you know, need hope. Right. And so uh, I, I found a lot of hope in in the vision of um, economic conversion in our community. Right. That, um, you know, at the end of the Cold War, when it looked like uh, electric boat might have to shut down because we no longer needed uh, nuclear uh, powered uh, nuclear armed submarines. Um, you know, this movement uh, went out, went door to door. Um, and talk to the workers and talk to the union people and uh, talk to their family members and uh, help them imagine a different, uh, you know, putting dinner on uh, the family table, doing something other than uh, uh, welding and riveting uh, submarines. Um, and, you know, it turns out they would love to do something different, right? And that they, so many of them got through their days 
by you know drinking heavily. Turns out drinking heavily and welding nuclear submarines not a good combination. Right? <laughs> uh, and so on the job, um, on the job injuries and um, just that that kind of that despair and that the grind of that psychic numbing like you know took a toll. Um, and you can still see the the line of bars. Um, they're all shut down now. Uh, along the main road uh, by uh, by electric boat and this legacy, right? This this evidence of you know these guys don't want to be doing this work, right? If they could be building the the windmills and the um, lithium batteries of, of the future, be part of the solution, uh, well, they would surely do that, right? And so there was so um, you know, and that that uh, process, you know, went went quite a ways and in relationship building and kind of finding common ground, um, kind of um, no longer being the, the, the picket and the picketees, um, but, you know, people who are all part of this, um, this same community. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, you know, our, our congressional delegation um, managed to kind of save the submarine um, that that work uh, kind of uh, fell by the wayside, um, but uh, but there's always opportunities for uh, doing that again and and more and better and and kind of looking, you know, now to just right here in our part of the country um, at at wind uh, power kind of moving uh, into Long Island Sound and and doing that from uh, our harbor here in. New London um, is a really exciting development, and there are engineers and polymer experts and you know widget makers um, who are needed for that work. Unfortunately, not as many, right? Um, and uh, uh, so, um, but but I think that the, you know that question of like, well, what's the like, what's the ultimate goal, right? Um, is is disarmament too too far of a, a reach? Um, and I think, you know, for lots of people, <laughs> including the vast majority of, you know, uh, Americans who, you know, um, uh, you know, mispronounce nuclear just like I do, um, and haven't really thought about nuclear weapons since, you know, 1992 or, you know, weren't born back then, you know, you don't maybe kind of start with Roger Fisher and 90 seconds to nuclear midnight um but um but you can have the conversation and and really um work to be replacing that that incohate despair um that that is kind of our um yeah it is part of the nuclear legacy right is part of um uh our atomic audit <laughs> um mm -hmm. as americans um and, and begin to you know and to begin to to interrogate that and, and work with that, and um, and maybe there's lots of opportunities to replace that with with some, you know, with some hope. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm reminded even because I was not to date myself, but I, you know, I was a kid in the '80s, and it was the height of the end of the Cold War, and we, I mean. I guess it, when I try to think about how do we how do we make this a, a broader topic among all generations? I mean, Gen Z, the younger generation, is very active on so many great issues, and they're so um, 
you know, inspiring in so many ways of their tenacity and their ability to articulate uh, their their desire for a better planet, a better future for themselves on a range of issues. Um, but this one seems to be lacking a little bit um, because it hasn't been on the forefront, you know. But when I was a kid, it definitely was. I mean, we used to have to do drills and hide under desks. Not that that was going to save us from some kind of weird attack. Um, but even grow, growing up in Montana, I remember having a, uh, a Soviet uh, dissident come and talk to our class, uh, basically talking, you know, an anti, anti-communist speech. You know, this is the height of the Reagan era. Um, but what's interesting at the same time, and um, uh, you write about it, Frida, is the that that moment in the 80s when there was a you know on a national stage a discussion about disarmament and obviously the soviet union or after the collapse later um and and the u.s uh didn't completely disarm and completely get rid of all of their nukes but um it was obviously a step in the right direction for a lot of reasons uh, we still have, a, they still both, both countries still had enough nukes to, you know, decimate the planet, of course. Um, but it was, the conversation was everybody agreed, like we need to de-escalate. We need to, to, you know, and how do we, you know, I guess I'm posing this question to both of you. I mean, how, how do we get that, um, that conversation back into the vernacular of our culture? Um, and how do we talk about these, these things? in a way that's productive and also hopeful um, and maybe building on some of that hope that was, you know, there in the past at least. Um, because as you know, with the daily shootings, the climate catastrophe, uh, the war in Ukraine, um, COVID, you know, uh, you, you just, you name it, there's like a million things that are distractions or maybe not distractions, but other concerns. Um, how do we bring this, um, this topic back into and maybe that's the same question that um, Indigo was was raising, um, and maybe I didn't have an answer for it. But uh, how 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 do we make this a topic again? Um, how do we, um, yeah, how do we raise awareness that this should be a topic? Um, Frida, when I read your article, which everyone should go read, um, I was really drawn to the psychic numbing, the the phrase psychic numbing that you included, because I was thinking about all these other issues. I was thinking about like the psychic numbing, you could say, of like COVID. Mm -hmm. My question is like whether the public even has an appetite for one more issue that feels like literally apocalyptic, you know, like after a million people have died, don't you become numb to mass death? And like once you have like a, a, sh a mass shooting once a week, don't you become numb to that? Like what what is, you know, one more existential threat to add to the pile? I'm I'm probably a journalist today because of Al Gore's um, The Inconvenient Truth. That was, um, you know, I, I watched in elementary school and it like really shook me to my core. Um, and I think a lot of younger generations and, and older generations kind of have that as like the main the main issue. Um, and I'm actually working on um, a piece right now about demilitarizing local economies and trying to decarbonize them, trying to like convert them to civilian economies. Um, and I was wondering like if you guys think having maybe more like, a, you know, it's hard to be hopeful with nuclear war. You can't really talk about nukes. You can't talk about nuclear plants 
even for just energy production without there being this like cloud of despair. And my, my question, I guess, would be whether it makes sense to kind of tie um, disarmament um, to like a, a more positive vision of transforming the economy. On the other hand, my, you know, I get back to disarmament and I absolutely agree. Like there, we, we just need to completely disarm all nuclear powers. Like I, that absolutely, that is no one person, no one country should have that much power. On the other hand, the United States is probably like the most dangerous nuclear armed power. And my other question would be like, in what circumstance could we imagine the United States giving up its nuclear nuclear arms? Because it's it's not just that they're giving up their nuclear arms. Let's say every other nuclear armed country gives them up first. Giving up our nuclear arms, even if we were the last ones, would be an admission that like we are no longer a global hegemon. You know, like in in what circumstance can we envision? And can we envision, because I have a hard time envisioning that, even, you know, even in my perfect world where like Bernie Sanders is our president and we won the House and the Senate and there are like a couple dozen more AOCs in office, like even in that world, it's hard to imagine, you know, a circumstance where the United States says we are willingly going to just get rid of these. Yes. Um, well, I mean, I think like that, that vision, right, of, uh, of the United States downgrading its power, right? Um, we can either decide to do it as a, as a nation of 330 million people and kind of recognize that our history has been, has been checkered and bloody and, um, you know, that this nation was built on these fundamental in, injustices of the transatlantic slave trade and uh, the seizure of, of, uh, of native lands and the genocide of peoples. And you kind of start, start there and start really, um, you know, trying to write a new narrative. Um, or it can kind of be done for us, right? And that's what we're experiencing sort of right now. Uh, and, and really kind of came to a head with the, the Trump administration is the, you know, is the crumbling uh, of the, you know, uh, of the American, you know, the, the shiny gold plated um, uh, reputation uh, of the United States uh, throughout the world. And, um, and so, like, I think, you know, we are, we are being downgraded as, as a hegemon. It is happening. We are not, um, we are not uh, calling the marching orders for eight, 8 billion people um, anymore, um, economically, militarily, um, culturally, um, uh, we are not, we're, we're not continuing to, to, to play that role. And, um, and, in, and I would argue in large part because um, we're, we are, we have chained ourselves to this um, to this nuclear albatross. Um, and it, it kind of goes back to, you know, that thing that I said at the beginning about the toolbox um, and really just continuing to uh, have the same playbook for every, you know, just to mix metaphors in a, in a you know, amateur way with my toolbox and my playbook. But, um, uh, you know, that we're, 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 we're using the same tools, right? And, 
Um, and meanwhile, our infrastructure is is crumbling. Um, our our education system is not uh, producing literate, you know, kind of prepared uh, 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 grown-ups. Um, uh, our healthcare system, you know, uh, couldn't handle uh, a public health crisis. Um, and, you know, so in all of these ways, we, we're, we're seeing uh, the legacy, and this is all, we can tie it all back uh, to, uh, to nuclear weapons. We can tie it all back to, uh, to militarism and to, you know, uh, 50 cents, 60 cents on the dollar uh, going uh, to the military industrial complex. Um, and so, you know, and we can also look back and say, you know, George Schultz wanted us to disarm. Uh, William Perry wanted us to disarm. Henry Kissinger wanted uh, the United States to disarm. And so it's not this fringe uh, left, you know, ideal. It really is um, and has been at, at different times in our recent history, this relatively mainstream uh, notion uh, that in order to keep pace uh, with uh, a rapidly changing world, we need to adapt and that, uh, uh, you know, kind of breaking the chains of, of, of nuclearism is, is part of that adaptation. Um, so, so that's kind of one, one response. Um, and I had another kind of thought, uh, that was, um, kind of brewing, but, um, I guess. Oh, getting back to the. I'll I'll leave that for now. I, I'm interested. We have a a, a question that came in um, that maybe we can take a stab at. It says, "Can we uh, say something about the contradictory way that the U.S. seems very interested in policing access to nuclear power and weapons, fear-mongering against Iran, justifying the invasion of Iraq, etc.? And what should the anti-nuke activists say?" to those who point out the hypocrisy to defend Iran or other nations in the global south looking to um, nuclear weapons as a defense against imperialist interests? It's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, that's the contradiction or the inherent contradiction that those, um, those militarists uh, that I was just talking about, Schultz and Kissinger and Perry, um, that's what they were sort of afraid of, is that the, the nuclear genie has gotten out of the bottle. It's not just uh, the West and, and Europe who uh, have nuclear weapons now. It's India and Pakistan. It's um, other countries. And, and I think that the, the fear of uh, nuclear weapons for all um, is, is something that, that made, um, you know, kind of uh, died in the wool. Uh, militarists here in this country very uncomfortable. And, and I think that that's another way that we can kind of get back to, you know, as the, as the creators uh, of nuclear weapons, as the only nation to use them um, in war, um, and use them against the people of Japan, uh, uh, you know, we have, we can lead we can lead the way uh, towards disarmament. And that then a lot of these other um, issues uh, will, I mean, not that they'll resolve themselves, but that uh, US leadership on this issue would uh, signal a sea change uh, for the other nations of the world. Um, and that it could be couched in this 
may, could be couched in the language of, of reparation and atonement, uh, finally hearing the, the voices of the Hibakusha, the survivors um, of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, finally listening uh, to uh, Native Americans who called out uh, the United States for so long for their mining and for the testing of nuclear weapons on Native lands here and in the South Pacific. Um, it can be couched in the language of atonement, or it can be couched in the language of, of kind of, uh, of uh, closing a, a chapter and um, adapting to changing realities. And you know, however we get there, I think um, the uh, U.S. leadership on this issue would, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. Iran wants to, uh, you know, uh, the people of Iran want, you know, roads and schools and uh, easy access to food, just like clean water, just like uh, we do. Uh, they're investing in uh, nuclear technology because uh, the big powers of the world have signaled that that's the way that you're taken seriously on the global stage. That's the only way. That's the only currency um, that the permanent five members of the Security Council recognize. Um, and uh, India and Pakistan have made that same uh, computation. Mm -hmm. countries uh, pursuing nuclear weapons, um, that's what's motivating them uh, to... Well, in, in, in their own backyard, Israel, right? Which is right. the... Exactly. Uh, they're not even admitting that they have any, uh, you know, publicly. Of course, we know that they do, and it's well known. But, um, yeah, I mean, we... I, th I think about it in the terms of also climate change, right? We, we can, oh, you know, China is producing more COT than the U.S., even though... The U.S. is per capita the biggest CO2 emitter. We can lead by example, right? We can show that we can get rid of coal. We can get rid of natural gas in transition, um, which might lead to another question here um, about power. Let's see what they say. Uh, is there any place for nuclear power in a just transition, or is it just too much of a poison pill? Um, we definitely hear a lot of rhetoric that uh, atomic energy is part of this bridge fuel, right? Um, but there's so many reasons that we could get into why it's completely the wrong road to go down. Um, there's a lot that uh, come to mind for me. Um, the cost is astronomical. Um, the time frame, it just won't happen fast enough. Um, but after doing this book on at Atomic Days, really learning about the perils of uh, radioactive waste and what that looks like, um, I don't know if people really understand that uh, a byproduct, there's many byproducts of the fission process, um, one of which is plutonium, which is the most toxic um, element or creation on Earth. This thing lasts for 250,000 years. It can be refined and used in uh, atomic weapons. Um, and all plants all over the world produce this stuff. Just down the road from me, um, close to where I like to go surfing, a San Onofre um, nuclear plant. And right above on this big cliff are these huge tanks full of this stuff um, of, of waste. And they don't have an answer for what to do with it um, because there, there really isn't an answer for it. Um, there's no way to safely store this stuff for. Um, um, 100 years, let alone 1,000 years, let alone 250,000 years. And if this stuff can be uh, one day used in an atomic weapon, 
um, and it's quite possible that it can, because by the time you get to the process of of, uh, of of waste, you've already done most of the work. So it doesn't take as much to reprocess this stuff and use it in an atomic weapon. Um, so I think we need to think about these things in the, that context. I mean, how is um, something like nuclear energy an answer for climate change when it creates all these other problems, right? There's no alternative fuel source or renewable fuel source poses these same risks. Um, I'm not saying that lithium mining isn't bad. Of course it is. Um, I'm not saying that, um, you know, uh, I don't know, solar panels don't have uh, problems or that wind farms shouldn't be opposed. I mean, there's lots of problems with all of this stuff that we need to address, uh, but none of them pose the same risks as atomic energy. And um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it should be nowhere near the conversation when it comes to transitioning to a renewable future. Um, one thing that I wanted to point out earlier, someone said that um, the defense industry funds this, this uh, technology development, um, nuclear weapons. The defense industry does not. The Department of Defense, a federal agency, not private business, funds these these weapons, these technologies, um, you know, putting the nuclear energy aside for a second, the, the government could fund whatever it wanted to. You know, we defied physics in a matter of years with the Manhattan Project. If we really had the same will and the, um, the budgetary uh, resources that we give to the Department of Defense to the question of climate change, we could probably solve this issue in a decade, like pretty quickly. I think it's, it's just like a matter of, um, uh, political will as someone who i remember um and i grew up in florida and i got picked up from school early one day because they there was a false alarm at turkey point they thought that the reactor was melting down so i really i mean i really don't think that this technology has any place anywhere if we really wanted to we could just phase out fossil fuels cut the billions of dollars in subsidies that we're spending on the uh, fossil fuel industry and and I switched to any energy source that we wanted to, if, if there was the political will. Yeah, and I think it's also important to remember that um, our the US military apparatus is the biggest CO2 polluter in the world. So, I mean, if we're, if we're fighting militarism, we're fighting for the climate, right? By de-escalating, we're fighting um, against nuclear prol proliferation if we're fighting against um, US hegemony and imperialism. Um, so a lot of these, you know, topics and in, really big picture stuff overlap, right? Um, so yeah. Anyway, I think that continuing this um, the fight against um, proliferation in general is really an important one for the climate and for the future of the planet. There's another question here that I thought was interesting. Um, 190 nations want to abolish nuclear weapons. Can the speakers say why they think the U.S. isn't one of them? Yeah, I can I can start with that, and then I'm interested in other views. Um, I mean, I I think it comes back to something that I think Indigo you said earlier about uh, nuclear weapons really being the hand behind uh, every. Um, every conventional uh, uh, weapons attack, every invasion, every uh, deposing of an elected leader, um, every regime change uh, scheme uh, that the United States has um, engaged in since 1945. Uh, 
um, uh, it's the uh, it's the collateral maybe uh, uh, upon which we you know uh, adventure uh, we being the United States adventure throughout the world and act with impunity it it um, it allows that uh, for that impunity um, and uh, giving that up means um, and kind of sort of as I as I said a little earlier means giving up uh, that impunity and uh, being held uh, accountable in the same way that other nations feel held accountable uh, for their actions. And I think that that would be a, a really interesting experience uh, for uh, the United States. I think that would be a step in the right direction to uh, join uh, the, the, you know, to join uh, the global community um, and be one amongst 194, 195 uh, nations of the world, uh, and and truly experience the the uh, mutual um, the mutual need and, and interplay um, all of our our deeply deeply tightly woven together um, uh, global community uh, to to truly experience that on every level. Uh, would be quite a different thing for the United States, and and our our militarism, you know, kind of acts as a as a cloaking device that protects us from that in some way. Um, but but I think we're in many ways poorer as a as a people, or poorer in our uh, sense of national identity because we're insulated um, uh, by our our nuclear weapons. And the 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 poser of the question is. It, the poser of the question is, um, is, is, is really correct. There is this um, growing global consensus, and we can see it um, through the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and, and the way in which uh, the list of nations that have uh, signed and ratified uh, that uh, really um, unprecedented uh, uh, global compact um, it grows and grows, and and we will find ourselves as the United States in a in, in very poor company, in, in hopefully in short order, um, with just a, a dozen or so um, nuclear weapon states and nuclear wannabes: um, uh, Israel, North Korea, India, Pakistan, China, um, you know, the United Kingdom, France. Um, uh, I think I named all of them. Um, in the United States, and and then some of our kind of um, most uh, most needy client states, uh, we'll find ourselves in very poor company. And, um, and I, I I think the treaty, you know, once it reaches a certain threshold, will uh, will start to have teeth um, and uh, and um, and sticks attached to it around um, really, you know, like. Um, punishing the countries that stand outside of the global consensus. Um, so I think we keep we keep working on that treaty and we keep pushing for, um, uh, uh, you know, people in the United States to see it as the tool that it is. And maybe this is a good question to follow with that. Um, what are the obstacles we can place in the way of uh, nuclear war? What strategies should we be using to prevent this possibility? Um, really quickly, I just wanted to go back to the treaty point. Um, one of the obstacles, I think, is that the United States just um, 
thinks it is um, the exception to the rule with everything. You know, the fact that it's not a part of the nuclear ban treaty is, is it's just like a long list of treaties that it hasn't signed on to. So if you look at, if you, you know, just go on Wikipedia um, as a fact checker, my supervisor would kill me, but um, you know, they're not signed, they haven't ratified the forced labor convention, the freedom of association and protection of the right to organize, the you know, the right to collective bargaining. They haven't signed the um, prohibition on lethal autonomous weapons. So, I mean, like putting nuclear aside, like a whole other class of like autonomous killer robots. Um, I think the United States really believes that if none of these things apply to the United States, I think part of that reason is because we're the only country to ever drop a nuclear bomb, you know? And it gives us this kind of power where it's like, until someone else drops the next one, we're going to remain in that position, for, at least from the United States perspective. Um, I think that's one of the big obstacles in the way. Um, I, you know, I don't know how we humble the United States. You know, if if it just seems to be kind of getting worse, like if Trump is given access to the nuclear codes, I'm not sure how you you take him away from Biden after that. But um, I'm curious to, to know what you guys think. Yeah, I guess for me, it's really hard to separate the risk of atomic warfare from imperialism and from capitalism, um, because obviously the uh, U.S. imperial machine is driven by the desire to for resource extraction, labor control, uh, you name it. Um, there's so many geopolitical reasons why we, we keep that arsenal in our back pocket. Um, so, you know, from a, from, um, a left perspective, this is all deeply intertwined into fighting capitalism as well. Um, so yeah, I don't know if, if, uh, Frida has something to add there, but, um, I, that's what comes to mind for me is that this is just really kind of all connected. And when I think about even the legacy that the cold war has left at the Hanford reservation, um, and that cleanup process and how profitable it is for all these contractors, that um, really, I think in the back of their mind, sure, they want to have it cleaned up, but they know it's kind of an impossibility in many ways, but it's a paycheck, right? Um, so how do we, you know, and it's a paycheck for people that work at Lockheed, right? It was, as we talked about before we went on air, that it's one of those things like Lockheed actually pays pretty well and has four-day work weeks in some places. And um, how do we dismantle this system and create new opportunities for, for people um, in the green energy sector or... And, you know, how do we demilitarize in general, right? Because that will benefit the climate. It will it will benefit the the, the global power stage. Um, and, yeah, I think if any of us had that, if there was a singular answer, that would be great. But there's probably, you know, there's not. I, I have a, a tiny piece of the, the answer. Um, and uh, and it, it starts by quoting Alexander Haig, uh, Secretary of State under Reagan, who said, let after the um, the big, I think he said it after the million person uh, march um, in New York City for nuclear disarmament and uh, and jobs. He said, let them march all they want as long as they pay their taxes. Um, <laughs> and I think that you know we're coming up on tax day, and I want to put on a, a little plug for uh, the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee, uh, my favorite acronym of all times, New Trick. Um, which is uh, having, I think it's just coming up in the next uh, week or so, a kind of a war tax resistance 101 um, 
exercise and you know like there's a, a workshop a workshop for war tax resistance and and i think that there's a lot of different ways to resist um and not pay uh war taxes uh, the way we do it is by in my family it's just by living uh, below the taxable income um which uh which forces us to be creative and uh gives us um a great gift that few americans have which is time um, time to um, time to garden, uh, time to engage, as the introduction said, in the barter economy. Um, time to do things like brew beer, uh, which is uh, has is taxed uh, in a huge way, um, and part of that tax does go uh, directly to the Pentagon. Every bottle, um, I think, carries a three or four cent tax uh, that goes to the Pentagon. So, um, you know, uh, something in. Uh, uh, Indigo, maybe about the next article that you're working on uh, about local economies, uh, you know, made me want to also just share that, you know, it's a source of, um, you know, a source of, of pride and hope. Um, and it's quite humbling to uh, to try and feed yourself from a, a tiny uh, front yard garden and to, you know, raise chickens and be, you know, waiting for the protein. You know, you just have to wait for it. <laughs> and, um and it it puts you in touch with with um, with something very uh, granular and es essential about um, about our relationship with the planet and with one another, right? Because we we can't feed ourselves, right? Like uh, no farmer, no individual farmer can feed themselves or their family. They need to um, work their comparative advantages and um, and collaborate and and do. Uh, different pieces of the work. One, one has the butter. One has the egg. One has the grain. One mills the grain. One uh, grows the vegetables. And um, and and to be to be doing that, to be in the land, even on a, a almost um, you know symbolic uh, uh, level, um, is um, is significant uh, in, in some in some way because it. Um, it helps, uh, helps make me kind of small and connected to my own labor again. Um, so anyway, those are those are some, those are just some uh, thoughts that come up. Uh, but this this tool about uh, tax resistance um, is is something uh, significant. And if enough of the 330 million of us uh, did that, um, it really would uh, impact uh, the war machine and impact this. You know this. The, we we keep describing this this network, and it's interlocked, and it it's itself um, perpetuating, and it's uh, voracious, and it uh, you know it takes, and it's making all this money for its stockholders. If we remove some small part of our own complicity from it, um, uh, and, and do that without just kind of uh, checking out completely, right? Um, then, uh, then we really are we are, really are doing doing something, um, and then there's a kind of reordering of life that comes from that. Um, uh, living a little bit more simply, living uh, more closely in uh, uh, relationships of mutual aid. Um, that's deeply anti-capitalist, and um, and uh, you know, kind of in a in a micro way, uh, builds the kind of world that. I think all of us would be much happier and safer um, and more fulfilled living within.
You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's great. I think we have, I think they gave us uh, five more minutes, so we should uh, maybe wrap it up, take one, one more question here um, that we haven't really addressed. Or maybe we could go ahead. Sorry. Um, will, will the written word and activism be enough to change people's minds? And do we need video of the horrors of nuclear war? Um, I don't know if, if videos are enough, right? I mean, we have a lot of um, that psychic numbing going back to that idea. I mean, we're inundated with the, these images, I think, in some ways. Um, that they become sort of numbing. Um, so I don't know if videos are the <laughs> the answer to that. Um, the 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 movie Chernobyl. It wasn't a movie. The the miniseries Chernobyl was like a hit, right? Everybody saw the horrors of this. But it kind of, in that sense, it still is. It distances us from the reality of it. Um, and it was one thing that I again trying to try to do with the book a little bit is bring the reality of the horrors of this big, huge project home, because it's, it's literally in our own backyard and it's happening right now. Um, and obviously the war in Ukraine, it's happening right now and it's very real and people are, are suffering, people are dying and maybe videos, maybe images are, are part of that. And maybe that resonates with some people. Um, so, you know, I'm all for everything that it takes to get people active and involved. Um, and, so if that's the case, great. But I don't know if that's the answer or not. Um, and I and I hope that we don't have one a, a catastrophe where there is going to be a, an opportunity to take video of this stuff. Um, obviously, Hiroshima or Nagasaki happened when there wasn't social media. There wasn't you know everybody didn't have a phone in their pocket. Um, and the and the images of of uh, victims of the Chernobyl meltdown. They're, they're out there. People can go look, look at what radiation exposure does um, to people, people's bodies. Um, but I, I'd also um, say let's, there's a lot of organizations that um, in the Hanford project, there was a lot of uh, intentional and unintentional releases of radioactive materials. There's a group called the Downwinders of people that have documented what's happened to their families that have rheumatoid arthritis, have uh, thyroid uh, cancers. Um, so I'd, you know, there's a lot of information out there that people can go and look at YouTube and, and hear testimonials of, of victims of, of, of nuclear proliferation. Um, there's, it's plentiful. So if people are, want to seek that out, it's there. Yeah. Um, my first reaction to the, the question was that, you know, uh, the United States military definitely thought that the images out of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, uh, too much for the American public that they would yeah. that they would activate and outrage uh, and horrify uh, uh, the American people um, and so those images mostly taken by uh, Japanese uh, people um, were censored um, and kept uh, kept under lock and key for years after uh, the Japanese surrender and the end of the war and it wasn't until 1957 is the I think that's right, that Life magazine was able to publish um, images from Hiroshima. And in fact, the photographer, whose name I'm, I'm uh, forgetting right now, um, you know, he walked through uh, his city, he walked through Hiroshima for uh, 10 hours. Uh, the day, um, the, 
on August 6th or maybe on August 7th uh, with his camera and he was only able to take seven pictures right, in that 10 hours because he really couldn't, he, he couldn't take the pictures. Um, he uh, was trying to help people. He was trying to connect with people. It was so heartbreaking and so horrifying to him that he physically couldn't make the pictures. And so there are these seven images. Um, and then, of course, you know, images taken uh, by other people. But um, I, I, I tell that because I, I, I think that the narrative, um, the kind of uh, triumphant narrative of, you know, the bomb being dropped to save American soldiers, you know, including my own father, who was uh, um, enlisted and, and, you know, fighting in uh, Europe at the time and expecting to be uh, moved to the um, uh, to the Japanese theater, um, that that narrative couldn't have really existed at the exact same time um, as those images of of civilians, of children, um, of women, of you know uh, people with the 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 patterns of their clothing uh, burned uh, onto their flesh, um, and uh, and so um, so the images are are powerful and uh, the United States military saw that power. Um, and, and I would say, as you know, Joshua pointed out all of the, the resources that are out there. I'll just say that the survivors um, of uh, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are now, you know, quite elderly people. And we, we lose more and more every year. And their testimony, the testimony of the Habakusha, people who have, um, you know, made themselves a resource to the world. Um, to tell of uh, the experience of um, of, of seeing um, uh, seeing their cities incinerated in, in a in a flash, um, they've devoted their whole lives uh, to telling those stories and to uh, working for nuclear abolition. So, um, listening to those voices um, is really uh, is a key uh, piece of um, internalizing. Uh, uh, what it means to possess all of these nuclear weapons and threaten their use. Um, the short answer for is writing and activism enough? It would be no, <laughs> um, just because you, we there's so many people's minds have, have to be changed in order for significant action to be taken on this. Um, the answer I always go back to most from for most things is do what you can where you are. I think someone said this earlier on the call. Um, I happen to be a writer, so doing what I can is writing. Um, and I tend to write about higher education and labor. And I think that's important because so much of our defense technology is developed on campuses. And so many of our students become the future workers for that, that war machine. Um, but I think, you know, it's really important to highlight labor. Like, it, we will not move past defense-based economies until workers are confident that they can have secure, high-paying jobs to support families in, um, you know, a green economy. So I think um, trying to remain positive, as hard as that is right now, with like the doomsday clock and COVID and climate change, trying to remain positive and trying to paint like a hopeful alternative vision um, is always something I try to strive to do. Yeah, and it's freedom can probably attest to, you know, getting out in, into nature, 
um, getting out. Th- that that's what works for me. You know, that's what gets me grounded, grounds me. Uh, whether that's if I'm having anxiety or stressed out or whatever. Like some people garden, some people do yoga, some people go hiking. You know, I think it's really important to be connected um, and, and and also to unplug a little bit and get you know get away from the chaos because we are inundated with it. You know, there's a 24-hour 24-hour news cycle for a reason, um, and we are probably all somewhat addicted to it. So, and and we feed off of it a little bit too, right? It's like kind of like our it's part of my profession, unfortunately, that part of it. But um, anyway, that's all I would add is that you know, get out into the soil. You know, plant some plant some tomatoes in your porch or somewhere, anywhere. <laughs> I don't know if we're coming up on an hour. Are we nearing the end here? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I, I just will end by saying thanks to Haymarket and in these times for putting this all together. And thanks for Frida and Indigo to, you know, contribute your thoughts. And it was really awesome to see you in on the screen. And for everybody out there, thanks so much. And uh, Subscribe to In These Times, go to Haymarket Books, pick up some books. They always have great sales. They have a book club. Um, There's lots of ways to support the work that they do. Um, So thank you. crystallize uh, your beliefs and, uh, you know, get you out in public and, and talking uh, with your neighbors about these issues. And so I find that really challenging and really good. And I'm just uh, really uh, delighted and learned so much, Joshua and Indigo, from both of you. And um, thanks also to uh, Haymarket in, in these times. Thanks to all of you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.